Hi, I'm Paul Nuglas, Executive Producer of Crisonia. The focus of today's Crisonia conversation is sustainable food technology and how it is helping make possible and drive the plant-based food revolution. The explosive growth of the plant-based market segment signals a broader evolution in the food and agriculture system towards food that is healthier, more sustainable, better tasting, affordable, and accessible for all. Technological innovation is making it possible to react to and fulfill changing and broad-based consumer demand and preferences. Today, we are fortunate to be joined in conversation by two of the architects of this revolution. Matt Crisp, CEO of Benson Hill, a company that's developed a cutting edge food innovation called CropOS to drive the revolution. And David Lee, president of App Harvest and current board member of Benson Hill, and the person who launched and led all business functions of Impossible Foods. App Harvest went public via SPAC merger it completed in February, and Benson Hill recently announced that it too will go public via SPAC merger to be completed later this year. In today's conversation, we will discuss the future of sustainable food technology and why plant-based initiatives are the intense focus of investment in the agricultural technology sector. We welcome your questions throughout. You can use the Q&A tab and we encourage you to participate in the conversation. I'm gonna put up one slide that broadly sets the stage for our Crisonia conversations in terms of our belief that the current food system must evolve to improve human health and the planet. I'm gonna leave this up for a few minutes and we're gonna jump right into the conversation. I'll start with David. It seems that we cannot talk enough about the promise of plant-based protein, but at this point, is there enough capacity of soy protein for plant-based food to really scale? Well, thanks for the question and um, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. What's happened recently is that consumers have really driven a revolution where they're increasingly aware through technology that the food we consume is not just a, a problem for their own health, it's a problem for our environment. And the explosion of demand uh, in consumers driving and asking for more and more plant-based proteins and other great food has resulted in a supply chain opportunity. Because the majority of what we produce today from the plant world is, is really used to feed animals for their inefficient means to become meat. And now we have meat that can be made directly from plants, as you see from uh, my former company, uh, Impossible Foods, and many others that are coming to market. It, it creates a wonderful opportunity for not just Benson Hill, but for the consumer and for the investor to provide higher quality forms of plant-based food to what is now a phenomenon from a demand standpoint. Demand is not the problem. Uh, the problem is how do we create better and better food companies to supply high quality ingredients to the market? Matt, Benson Hill has described itself as the picks and shovels of the plant-based food revolution. Please talk to us about how Benson Hill uses artificial intelligence, data, and a variety of breeding techniques to create innovative food and ingredient products. Um, I guess one example would be your ability to increase the protein density of plants coming off of farms. Um, that's right. And, and thanks as well, Paul uh, and the team for, for having me uh, join the conversation today. Yeah, look, there, there's, a, there's a really unique intersection that uh, Benson Hill has positioned itself at the crux of, and that's data science, plant science, and food science, as you, as you described. What does that enable us to do? It, it's really enabling us to unlock this very profound resource that we haven't really innovated enough around, and that's the natural genetic diversity of plants. Um, plants have a remarkable amount of potential um, to produce more nutrition density, as you, as you mentioned in the field. Um, but over time, and as that slide you, you flashed up there um, alludes to, uh, you know, we, we've bred away from that. We, we've focused uh, historically on quantity over quality. And so what Benson Hill is, is really dedicated itself to is, is technological innovation, again, at the convergence of those three disciplines, allowing us to innovate at the seed level and to create a, a better plant, which in turn 
uh, makes better food and better ingredients. And by better, we don't just mean better nutrition or more nutri nutrient density, but we might mean better flavor. Um, we might mean more sustainable, meaning we get more output for the relative amount of inputs that we have. And then ultimately, uh, you know, it leads to um, you know, a tremendous amount of opportunity, not just in soy, but in many other crops that can supply this new food system movement. David, you spent years at the epicenter of the plant-based protein revolution in your roles building Impossible Foods. How does App Harvest help drive this revolution? And please explain the role of controlled environment agriculture. Sure. Well, the, the hard reality is we have to solve our problems in the food chain from, as, as Matt talked about, all the way from the seed to how we pick the best from nature and grow all the way to high quality ingredients and finished goods and how it even gets to the consumer. And for perspective, while at Impossible Foods, we really focused on giving, you know, this multi-trillion dollar meat market, the ability to have better product made entirely from plants. But the problem isn't just about the impacts that um, agriculture is having on the environment and on our health. Think about the U.S., for example, you know, since... 2000, the amount of agricultural products that we import into this country has tripled. If you just look at vine crops, if you look at tomatoes and peppers and, and berries, something like 69% of them come from outside the country. And, and as Matt noted, they're, they're designed for transportability and quantity. They're oftentimes covered in chemical pesticides. They're not optimized for being able to be delicious and nutritious and being able to be provided quickly to consumers. You know, consumers in the US, only 10% of consumers eat enough fruit and veg uh, for their health. And so the simple solution is we have to make our food more efficient. Controlled environment ag <clears throat> has been around for a while, but unfortunately for the United States, the epicenter has been outside the US. It's been in the Netherlands where there are large scale controlled environment ag facilities that, at App Harvest, we have just launched our first and we have 11 more coming. These are large facilities. The Moorhead, our first farm is 50 American football fields large. You know, its rainwater reservoir is 70 Olympic swimming pools big. And because we're large and we have a 30X improvement in productivity and yield, we can provide products that aren't covered in those chemical harsh pesticides we can provide them within a day of 70% of the U.S. population, and we can do it <clears throat> using recycled rainwater, 100% recycled rainwater, for example. So, so controlled environment ag is just one part of an uh, unfortunate global problem we need to solve. Um, I, I'm also super excited to work with Matt and his team as a board member at Benson Hill, because what's wonderful about the business of Benson Hill is I really think it can solve horizontally across the entirety of this food supply chain that's broken um, from the seed all the way to how we grow to how we make better food for, for the environment. And, and it, it goes beyond the US, but the US is an unfortunately a, a very good example of how big the problem is that we need to solve. Wow. Well, I, I have a question for the both of you. Um, David, before Impossible, you spent almost nine years at Del Monte Foods. And Matt, you grew up in venture capital space and understand the convergence of plant science, data science, and food science. Um, I think a pertinent question for our, our discussion today, are the biggest established players in food, are they able to innovate in the same way this new wave of upstart seems to be? David, you want to kick that one off? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, given that I was a part of big food, you know, uh, the, the business at Del Monte was um, a couple billion dollars of producing fruit and veg. Um, and, and while I'd like to think uh, as a public company at Del Monte before we took it private, that we were trying to be part of the solution. The hard reality is that very large incumbents have quarterly earnings to hit. They have fixed cost structures to manage. They, it is very hard to ask any leader. However, passionate, however um, aware those leaders are, to cannibalize your own business, to frankly, 
risk your job if you're, you know, a Section 16 officer of some of these many great food institutions to pivot towards where the consumer is going quickly. Um, a big part of why um, I was excited to work at Impossible Foods and to help Matt at Benson Hill is new companies, well-funded, now increasingly by public company investors with real new technology, have the benefit of a clean sheet of paper to design the, the future large global food companies in a couple of decades from now. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it is just tremendously difficult. And, and I've seen it both as a customer at Impossible Foods looking for better and better ingredients. And I see it from a consumer standpoint too, where there really is a bit of a cynicism, you could almost say a bit of skepticism by end use consumers that big food, that big ag can be trusted. And, and these are really strong impediments, I think, for the, the revolution that we need to occur to be led by big companies alone. They, they, are, they are a part of it, there is no question, but it's, it's gonna require um, younger upstarts with more dramatic change in mind, in addition to the heart of the industry. And it, I think, it's, I'm very optimistic it will happen because the consumer is now demanding it. Um, and, and consumer movements, these populist notions have a way of breaking through and creating lots of change for large players and small ones. Matt, yeah, anything you'd like to add? <clears throat> yeah, I would. I would say that you know when when you do think about large incumbents and the incentive structures, uh, I agree one hundred percent with with David's comments on that. I'd, I'd also offer that um, you know when you when you look at innovation and when we think about technological innovation, particularly in the food system. Which, by the way, I don't I don't have a background in, in food and agriculture, but if I contrast food and ag and the value chain to other verticals uh, that, that I've seen um, adopt innovation and accelerate innovation towards the end markets, I'd say that there's also a, a major opportunity to innovate the business model. Um, that doesn't mean we need to tear down the whole system and rebuild it, but remind ourselves that this system and the very, very large players who effectively dominate it uh, built this for scale. And, and the consumer side of the equation, the demand side, is indeed catalyzing change or demanding change much faster than the current system is equipped to deliver it. And, and I think it's, it's just incumbent upon companies like Benson Hill and App Harvest and others to, again, not just think, how can I make the, the better product or the more, um, you know, the more healthy outcome uh, or the more tasty outcome or the more sustainable outcome? But importantly, how can I also deliver that to people who care? And if we, if we don't be, if we're not mindful about both sides of this innovation paradigm, uh, I think that we're leaving a lot of opportunity on the table. And I think, frankly, that um, we're adopting some of the same friction that, that might persist in the category today. Great. Um, we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but I'd like to, you brought up consumer demand. Um, if we can put up the second slide. So Matt, um, is, this, is this indeed tapping into latent consumer demand for healthier food and more innovative growing methods and inputs? Um, I mean, when we say latent demand, um, I, I certainly I believe the answer is yes. I, I think what, it, what, what has caused pent up demand, latent demand, uh, I would say that this was an emergent theme, somewhat have even called five or more years ago a fad um, that has become a, 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 a trend on a, um, you know, on an accelerating track uh, that, that, we're not, that we're not going backwards on. Uh, that has been further accelerated by the pandemic, you know, when we're all locked in our homes and we're making more of our, more and more of our own food, we become aware of um, what it does for our bodies and where it comes from and what the environmental implications are in our food production system. And so I, I, I agree with that comment that there's a, there's a mountain of latent demand there. But what I'd, I'd offer is that the, the consumer is smarter than they've ever been and, and getting smarter um, all the time. 
And the information flow into the food system and ultimately to the consumer is helping us understand that um, there's more than just, you're buying more than just the, the, the label. You're buying more than just uh, the values that the company that's selling to you uh, is providing. Um, we're getting smarter about how to link ingredients and the number and the type of ingredients to prospective health, health outcomes. We're learning more about nutrition and how our metabolism works. Um, so with all of that education, I think um, does, does you know, create more and more of the demand side pull. But what I'd also say is that the biggest unlocks for that oftentimes are gonna be things like flavor, 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 taste always first really, but also things like affordability. Um, you know, when we think about alternative plant-based foods today, oftentimes what rings to mind, and I think this is endemic in the system, is more expensive. And we have got to think also about how to make these types of food more affordable and more accessible if we're really to actually meet not just the latent demand, but frankly, to accelerate the demand curve even more than, than we think is possible. And so I'm going to link these next two questions. Um, the first one for David, you seem to imply the opportunity was not about vegetarians, but the much broader meat eating population worldwide. And so is this more about creating broader consumer choice and less about substitution? I just I was hoping. You yeah, I, I think, listen, let me uh, be a little provocative the demand that we're talking about for plant-based products is no longer latent. It's been around for decades. People for decades have wanted healthier food options that taste great. What's new is that for the first time for many of these markets, the meat eater market being one, but frankly, the consumer, all consumers of vegetables, whether they're meat eaters or not, um, what's new is that companies like Benson Hill and App Harvest and Impossible Foods are using technology to meet the real non-latent obvious demand that incumbent products have failed to deliver on. One example is William Blair did some primary research, issued a 50 page report on uh, plant-based meat as one example. And, and they noted uh, that our work in Impossible Foods meant that something like 90% of the consumers of the Impossible Burger are hardcore meat eaters. They are not the important, but pretty small but fast growing plant-based consumer. And if you think about what Benson Hill's doing, if you think about what App Harvest is attempting to do, we're trying to serve the heart of the market. Um, and that market requires affordability as Matt has mentioned. You know, when we designed our first Moorhead farm, we designed it to produce one of the more ubiquitous forms of fruit and veg, the, the good old fashioned tomato. And if you go to grocery stores, you can find our tomato in the vines for 99 cents. We're not interested in the precious, uh, expensive fringe market. We're interested in creating a revolution in the heart of the market. And so I think the opportunity is not for an emerging trend. It's not for, frankly, what, we, what has been called latent demand. It's for the obvious demand by the majority of the biggest food markets that frankly have had to compromise for decades on product that's not as good as what technology can create. I, I think that's the bigger, more important market that um, the companies I'm interested in are, are really seeking to serve. And so Matt, I'll just put it to you as a, as a follow-on. It sounds like, are these innovations actually allowing growers and CPGs to offer food that they actually couldn't even offer in the past? Uh, I, I say yes and. Uh, to offer food um, with a set of sustainability um, profile, with a sustainability profile and for a, for a price point that they also couldn't offer it. And, and if you want to take it back to the grower, let's use this as an example. You know, one of, one of our flagship products that we're really excited about is called Ultra High Protein UHP, where you know, we can produce a, a soybean that has such high nutrition density in the field, in the bean, in the field, that we can disintermediate some of the extremely expensive uh, water and energy intensive processing between that, that plant and, the, and its harvest, the beans of, from its harvest, to the ingredient that is the primary input, the number one base ingredient, base protein ingredient for the alternative plant-based category, okay? 
because we can take a lot of using the natural genetic diversity of, that's already there, by the way, because we can take out of the, the system a lot of the cost associated with that, we can, we can work with a grower, our grower partners, and provide more on-farm profitability by paying a premium. We can move through our, our value chain in an identity-preserved manner uh, the product, maintaining its integrity separate and apart from the commodity system. And then we can turn around to our customers, let's say the CPGs of the world, and offer it for a substantially less price point than they're currently paying for the ingredient to serve that purpose. And still have a very attractive margin profile in the middle. And so, and so when you go back to this comment you made about picks and shovels, this is what that means. And I agree again with David on this, it's, it's in the crosshairs of the mass market here, because if we really want to unlock the demand side fully, and we're able to see the types of cost savings we can provide a CPG passed along to the customer, it's actually, you know, it's, it's, it's deflationary, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about an acceleration of, of the trend that's here. Um, and we're talking about doing it in a manner that is brand agnostic. That's, that's the picks and shovels line, right? It's impossible, maybe a smashing success. Beyond me, maybe two. Kellogg, Tyson, you name it. I mean, there's 50 brands that have made public announcements in the last uh, 12 to 18 months about developing great products for this category. And some will be winners and some will be losers. But what, what our, our focus and intent is, is by going back to the seed and starting better from the beginning in, in, this, in this food value chain, we can supply to, to any number of these folks, right? We can supply the tools, the technology, but very importantly, the product outcomes that enable them and in turn us as consumers to enjoy the benefits of technology that can be brought into the system. So, so if you read a lot of research on this, it seems like folks always go back to saying that price will ultimately limit the growth of plant-based protein. And it, it sounds like coming from both of you that, that you don't believe in and you don't agree with this argument. Um, but I was interested on the affordability front and on the scale front, are these solutions applicable to less developed countries that are struggling with food insecurity and malnutrition? I think sometimes people look at the plant-based revolution and they think, oh, you know, this is a bunch. This is for a bunch of folks living on the coast, and this is, you know, Erewhon Market and things like that. And I just—is uh, this applicable to, you know, parts of the world that are really struggling right now? Yeah, let me let me jump in um, because it's a, a passionate topic for us. Um, the short answer is absolutely. So let, let me back up. The United in the United Nations estimates that we need fifty percent more food by twenty fifty. Globally, 70% of the rainwater that exists today is already used to produce food. So based on the math, this is a global phenomenon. And you know, for the moment, while I really believe in the business of plant-based ingredients to serve, for example, the meat market, put that aside, this is about growing better fruits and vegetables, period. If you look at Singapore's 30 by 30 initiative, or if you look at um, the diplomatic crisis in the Middle East that spawned an increased notion of food security, if you look at the disproportionate impact climate change is having on less developed economies, the places in the greatest economic need are getting devastated more by climate change. There is a mandate for even places that are developing to have technology that can be uh, used to produce more and more food. Um, we have an opportunity in the United States to create a leadership position that can be used to solve many of the global problems everywhere. Uh, controlled Environment Ag, for me, is, is a solution here in the US, and that's our focus, but it's a solution that needs to occur globally because the bottom line is we need more food. Um, and we need it in, in areas that are getting hit harder and have disproportionately less access to capital. Uh, but, it, but it needs to start in the developed economies because technology requires investment, which is I think a, a common theme for both what we're doing at Parvest and what Matt has announced at Benson Hill in terms of operating as a public company, which is a wonderful way 
uh, to fund new technology that has a mission that's global beyond just the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when David talks about you know, climate change and climate resiliency and the degree of impact, um, I, I, especially in the, in, the, in, the, in the developing world, um, let's remember that these are crops, many crops that have not like uh, yellow pea, which is a recent phenomenon in the last 10 years in the United States. These are, <laughs> their nutrition is often supplied by a bunch of crops that have gotten little to absolutely no attention from a, from a research and development perspective. And, and I agree when you think about how to empower innovation into the system, not just domestically, but globally, we've got a really incredible opportunity to, to, to use technology platforms to accelerate breeding, um, to use tools like CRISPR and gene editing to unlock solutions that allow our crops to have more climate resiliency. And really importantly, um, I, and I've, I've really shifted away from using this word food, uh, food security, uh, allow us to embrace nutrition security and to, and to really more markedly move the dial um, for the crops that are grown in, in a lot of countries around the world, embrace the biodiversity that's there, use it to, to the advantage of, uh, of folks who, as also pointed out, you know, have been even more dramatically impacted by, you know, the supply chain disruptions in the pandemic environment uh, than the developed world over the last year plus. Um, it's a unique opportunity. I do want to go back, Paul, one, one point you made earlier that I, I want to clarify in respect of the cost and, uh, uh, and the affordability of alternative plant-based protein products. Um, we, we actually do agree that the cost of these products would limit, will limit their growth if things don't change. Mm-hmm. I wanna be clear, we, we have to install change to make these products more affordable and more accessible in order to not just uh, meet the demand, but to, again, accelerate, uh, to accelerate the demand. Great. Um, I'd encourage participants, if you have a question, please come in through the Q&A function down at the bottom of your screen. Um, with that said, I'm going to keep going because we, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, it seems, and this is a question for both of you, if these technologies are indeed changing how we, were, how we are able to grow, they must also impact climate change, sustainability. It's just, it's interesting to me that all these things that I used to talk about, that used to kind of be in their own buckets. So you would talk about climate change, then you would talk about the plant-based food revolution, and you talk about sustainability. Um, increasingly, and, and through the Crisonia conversations, it feels to me like it's all directly converging and that it's not contradictory is this effectively all the same discussion that we're having? Uh, it is now, because now providing a sustainable solution is the cheapest solution. Let, let me give you a real example. In the early 2000s, as you mentioned, I was at Del Monte Foods. Back then, as I sought to you know, su- sustainably uh, receive a tremendous amount of fruit and veg, Central California farmers were enduring drought. This is the early 2000s. They were pulling up peach trees and planting nut trees. These are 10 year bets on a shifting climate. So this was in the early 2000s. You fast forward to today, well, well look at app harvest in our first farm. You know, when you can recycle uh, all the rainwater, when you can use 90% less water, when you can c- cultivate um, skilled local labor, uh, instead of the expensive and low quality treatment of migrant labor in food, when you don't have to spray your products with pesticides, when you, you forego a week of chewing up your expensive diesel to get your product you know, uh, to the market, these things that we are doing uh, to increase our yield by 30x they happen to be consistent with our ESG mission, but they're very consistent with how you have to create financial resilience in a company you build. Um, it, you know, when we deployed solar on our food uh, uh, facilities at Del Monte, we saved a tremendous amount of money in the cost to make food. And so the reason why you're seeing it converge is because the financial requirements for success and the environmental and ESG requirements for saving our planet 
are really converging quickly in part because the consumer is demanding this. The heart of the market, the everyday consumer of food, now it's one of the top five impacts on their decision. You go back a couple of decades and, and you use some credible research and ask the at-large consumer of food, how important is your choice driven by the way the food company operates, the impact it has on the environment, the impact on health? It wasn't as important. It is today. So because the consumer, because your demand requires this, it makes good business sense to do well by the planet in addition uh, to providing healthy food. Mm -hmm. Great. Matt, do you have anything to add? Otherwise, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. We actually have some questions coming in. And the only quick thing I'd add there, Paul, is that the other convergence that's occurring, which is helping us unlock these opportunities, is a, as you actually flashed up on that slide a few minutes ago, is that technological convergence. You know, 10 years ago, it was logs more expensive to access compute power, um, to gene, you know, to sequence a genome, um, to, to genotype, you know, a, a, a huge population of plants, um, to execute, you know, AI uh, technology against um, prediction simulations, you know, around complex genomes as we do in plants every day. You know, these types of things were really not accessible. Uh, frankly, to the broader market and the collapsing cost curves of enabling technology, all of which I mentioned, plus incredible new tools like, like CRISPR and gene, gene editing, that is a massive unlock that is helping enable and accelerate even the product pipelines, which enable us to, uh, to, to realize a, a multi several layers worth of value prop for a product that does what David's talking about. Not only can we produce something that's more sustainable or healthier or tastes better, but you can simultaneously do it for less cost. I mean, that's the, that's the holy grail. And that's, that's what I think technology is just, you know, again, the, the, the timing is, it couldn't be better for the convergence of, of that technology, um, the context with uh, the demand side and the explosion in some of these markets we're seeing. So we, we've got some good questions coming in. I'm going to try to get to as many of them as possible. Um, Bill Lemon asks, is the growing use of new plant proteins for new consumer products going to hit a supply chain problem? I would say we already have, <laughs> for sure. And, and I think it's the reason why, I mean, let me be clear. Technology can create food that's better for the environment and cheaper, which which Matt properly called the Holy Grail. Well, well that Holy Grail uh, is happening at companies like Benson Hill and App Harvest and Impossible. But the reality is the amount of high quality plant protein is no, it's not sufficient for the amount of demand that already exists. This is the opportunity uh, that technology creates. The cost of technology, which I wanna be clear on is you have to fund upfront the CapEx and the technology to create something that's better for the environment, better for health and cheaper. And, and so there is a, a, a return on invested capital requirement for this great solution that I think exists. Um, but now you have companies that have the technology to address what I think is already a pretty significant supply chain issue, uh, given mm -hmm. the amount of demand that, that we see. Yeah, we, we estimate so uh, that there's, a, there's 1 80th of the capacity that's needed just for the base soy protein ingredients for forecasted demand in the next 10 years, 180th. And we're already tapped out and we're already seeing the prices of these base uh, protein ingredient inputs uh, skyrocket. So uh, I, yeah, I mean, we're, we've got a, we, <laughs> our, our perspective is of course, you don't need to build some of that supply chain capacity. Rather, we need to, to load the system up with more innovative products and, and, and use that as a mechanism to meet the demand. But we certainly have supply chain challenges and 100% agree. Terrific. Um, Sue Harkenhauser asks, what role does the quality health of the soil affect the output of the product? Is this part of the equation for the high protein plant slash bean? What needs to change for positive impact? Well, well I'll when, start. Oh, go ahead, yeah, go ahead, you yeah. start. Well, I was only going to offer that, you know, soybean and other legumes are, are, are uh, incredible organisms because they can fix uh, nitrogen in the, in, the, in the roots, they're legumes. And um, uh, that's, that's helpful, of course, to supply nutrition 
uh, into our diets. And for, it's one of the reasons why legumes are used, you know, as a primary protein source. Um, but, but, but being responsible around soil health and using regenerative ag practices is a, is a massively important component for the success and the conservation of a system like this. Um, and, and so when we talk with our, our partner growers around, the, uh, around this topic, there are and will be more opportunities to help bring value back to the growers uh, who are innovative and who are thinking exactly along these lines. And that will perpetuate uh, positive uh, outcomes and investment into the regenerative practices that, you know, that help fuel the next generations, long-term generations of, Absolutely. of growth. I mean, listen, let's be real. One third, uh, the BBC and other uh, international um, sources have, have estimated that one third of our soil globally is moderately to highly degraded already, full stop. So, so when I talk about the math not adding up, when we need 50% more food, when a third of our soil is already degraded, when 70% of all the fresh water is already being used in the existing incumbent technology, yes, soil is a big, big factor. And, you know, controlled environment ag, like um, we're one example. At Op Harvest, we have a hydroponic system. We use no soil. We can directly feed our crop the nutrients required, and we can recycle you know, all of our rainwater to use 90% less water and have no runoff, have no soil degradation. And many companies like App Harvest need to grow quickly because the extent of the problem goes far beyond just um, the higher quality, uh, higher protein uh, ingredients market. It's there as well. But I think companies like Benson Hill and App Harvest and Impossible Foods, we're seeking to solve a much bigger issue which is the global crisis we have in food. Um, we have a ton of questions coming in. We're not gonna be able to get to all of them within the hour, but we will forward these questions to you. Maybe we can follow up via email, but I do wanna to get to just a, a few more. Um, from Prefol Meta, can you connect this impressive vision with the revenue and profitability model? to help investors understand the path to profitability. And this, uh, this also dovetails with a question that I was gonna ask each of you, are publicly traded investment opportunities key to this revolution really taking wing? And I think this may have an impact on your answer to why did each of your companies decide to come public now? Well, the, so there's several questions there, I'll, I'll kick it off. Um, you know, going public for Benson Hill is a financing event. And I do, I, I wouldn't limit this answer to public, uh, uh, to public uh, investments. I think private investments are just as important, but it's really a, a around capital formation. In order for companies like ours and others to innovate, you, there's a need to form more capital. It's, it's a relative to human healthcare it's a drastically underfunded category. We spend a minuscule amount on nutrition research in the United States, it's just another example. Um, and so capital formation to accelerate growth is absolutely imperative. Um, that's why Benson Hill is, you know, that's why we've made this decision is to further your gear shift up and accelerate our growth, makes critical in technology and supply chain investments. Um, but the, the, to the other part of the question, um, you know, profitability. Look, if you don't have a business plan to be profitable, um, you know, hopefully you're not getting a, uh, <laughs> hopefully you're not crossing the line into, into these markets. Um, we have to be thoughtful uh, with how we're allocating capital, especially as a, as a technology platform company at Benson Hill, because there's so many opportunities. We've chosen to focus on uh, in the near term protein uh, as, as, a, as a key proving ground, but with a, a model to reach profitability that's very thoughtfully architected. And as I mentioned before, combines not just technological innovation, but, but go-to-market business model innovation to ensure that we don't create additional dependencies and risks on the, on the supply chain side uh, as we execute and grow. Yeah, I'll just add, for companies that seek to have the impact uh, that we're describing, they have to be as ruthlessly focused on financial unit economics as they are on consumer benefit. And being public is an asset because it forces management teams every quarter under the bright light 
of a quarterly release from my former days, I know this, turning around Best Buy and Del Monte and Zynga to hold themselves accountable to the hard truth that we have to make money for our investors. Let me give you an example. Um, unit economics are important. So what is my unit? My unit is a controlled environment ag facility. It's why last week when we released the quarter, we said, well, what's the, what's the return? And we were explicit. We said, well, it's gonna cost 100 to $135 million to make one of these things. And we increased our internal target for the unlevered return on invested capital to be between 17 and 23%, call it 20%, right? That's a, that is a number that we will ruthlessly drive towards. And, and by the way, the capital formation, as mentioned by Matt, shows up because we also said, and, um, and soon we'll announce a, a close, but we said we are gonna close a financing of our first farm, Moorhead, a real asset that we own, a 60% loan to value, four to 5% debt facility that gives the levered return on invested capital for one of our farms to be between 43 to 58%. I also wanna be clear, it is much harder to deliver for the financial community if you all as well care about being you know, a benefit corp or be certified as we are, but it's still required because if we're not financially self-reliant, if we're not an attractive investment for public and private investors, we won't continue to have the means to grow. Um, so I think every company must be as ruthless about the bottom line. The question is how strong an investment case can you make? Because it does take initial investment to produce technology that have an ongoing stream of return. Uh, and that is the job of management. The job of management is to uh, provide sufficient credibility for an investor to make a bet today that will dramatically pay off tomorrow to, to simplify it. And, and that's what we're focused on uh, as a management team. Great, um, I'm gonna to get to a few more questions. I've got one for Matt from Matthew Ship. What is the new realistic timeline for getting a product from lab to consumer with your tech? Well, we've, we've shown that um, we can actually conduct simulations on the front end of the process. And um, for all intents and purposes, uh, get rid of, you know, some of the key early steps that might have required wet lab uh, uh, testing or actually growing out physical plants. So it's a way of saying that we, we've, we've gotten to the point where we can use CropOS for crop operating system, our, our technology platform, um, to actually uh, show market reductions in the early stages of what, what used to be the product development pipeline. Um, but to the question in terms of time, you know, it, this is a big it depends answer. You know, historically, you know, between breeding and um, other go to market for crops, you, you would see timelines published between seven and 15 years. Uh, today, you, we can see within uh, a couple years for a CRISPR gene edited product or potential product, whether or not we're getting a phenotype. And if it's validated through the subsequent trials, you could be in market at four to eight years. It just depends on, it, it just depends on many factors, the crop not included, uh, the crop included, sorry. Um, so I would, I would say, generally speaking, you can, through breeding, uh, AI-informed breeding, through CRISPR and gene editing, um, the, 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 the cursory view is you can shorten timelines um, by anywhere between 25 and 75%, and you can reduce costs all the way up to 90%. Great. And then I've got a question for David from Edward Whipple. So what does the future of a Nebraska or Iowa 2000 acre farm look like under your controlled environment system? Well, um, a leading university estimates that we need 17 to 22,000 acres of controlled environment ag production new to the system in the US just to replace the amount of imported product that, you know, forget about the, the farmers in, in Nebraska and Iowa, our competition at App Harvest are um, really the open field farming that's not great for the environment or consumers that's largely imported. Uh, in the case of vine crops, you, you've already heard me talk about the 69% number that's imported. And, and so for me, um, creating a new form of leadership in American ag doesn't come at the expense of the existing American ag. 
it, it, it is required in any case, given that food is the biggest growth category no one thinks of. You know, we all think about the bright, shiny new categories driven by technologies being consumer electronics or mobile devices. Let me tell you, the increased requirements for food globally are so significant that it'll be maybe one of the largest growth industries for the foreseeable future. And, and as a result, we have to have a rising tide, technology to help existing players, but new technology to displace the forms of ag that aren't good for the world. Um, so I, I, I can honestly wish well uh, existing American ag as we seek to provide new leadership in central Appalachia. And I'm not sure if this is a provocative follow-on, but so we, we talked about the impact on the farmer. What about the impact on the rancher? Well, I'm in the business of providing a consumer what they want. And right now I'm in the business of growing um, up to 40 million pounds of tomatoes in one farm, soon to grow to 12. Um, I Listen, I want my ranchers to be able to enjoy our tomatoes grown in the heart of central Appalachia as much as anyone. Um, and I think Benson Hill has an opportunity to serve both industries, uh, the emerging plant-based industry, as well as the existing uh, industry in terms of what ranchers are feeding the animals that they're producing. Um, this doesn't have to be, the, the change we're talking about doesn't have to be at the expense of, of someone. Uh, it, it has to be a, a positive change to solve a global problem. Great. And uh, we're going to keep going. I thought this was an interesting question. Where is the talent coming from to do the cutting edge work? And they refer to it as science talent, but, and their follow on is, you know, which U.S. universities, I would actually expand this to what global universities are doing the best work. And are the, are the traditional ag programs, are they churning out the people that you need? Or are, you know, Matt, you said before, you, you didn't come from an ag background. Um, where are you finding the talent today? Well, we, we've got a, a lot of different uh, geographies uh, where we've been able, fortunate to draw talent from. Um, some working remotely now, some in St. Louis, many in St. Louis, of course, uh, where we're headquartered. Um, I wouldn't name specific universities. I don't want anybody to, to chase after me in the hall. But um, what, what I would say is that there is a, a, a significant value to the kind of collaboration across disciplines that we see. And, you know, a, a great deal of the talent that we have at Benson Hill didn't come from a traditional ag program. Um, you, you know, these are engineers and, 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 and data scientists and, and folks, you know, from the uh, healthcare industry or the biotechnology field. I mean, that, that mashup of disciplines and perspectives and, and views is, is actually, I think, synergistic with one another um, in, in a way that far exceeds, you know, where somebody's, um, you know, degrees from or their, you know, the, the quality, quote unquote, of the alma mater. <laughs> Fair enough. And um, we had one, I'm going to ask one more question before we wrap this up. Um, we, we had an interesting question. How can we increase communication and promote new technologies and products made with them? And this may be, get back to our, our question of why public and, and why now, but I just, how, how do we better communicate? Well, I'll, I'll jump in here. I think um, for the moment, if you zoom out, technology has enabled the individual investor, not just the large global institutional ESG or food or technology investor. It's, it's enabled and we see it every day. For good and bad, we see the enablement of individual investors to have a disproportionate impact on a company's future with the advent of social media and, and you, can, you can find your many examples. Um, that's a huge opportunity for those of us who believe that consumers are demanding better food because the transparency of being public and their populist movement in being public company investors can, can combine to create more flow of capital to companies developing technology that happens to be better for the world and also is great for investors. Um, so I think you know, embracing the retail investor beyond the large institutional investor is a very real uh, way to drive some of this change. 
And I think just being radically transparent to consumers in your marketing and branding, really telling them, this is how we make our food. Here's why we make it this way. I think that is a nice contrast to the way that the bigger food industry has operated. Uh, and I think that will enable faster change as well. Okay, well, we are, we've got about five minutes left. I, I'd like to ask each of you, um, where are we in this revolution? I know the baseball game analogy is a bit tired, but are we in the early innings, the middle innings? Are we calling in the reliever? I think people, and, and I hearken back to, you know, the days when I, I was covering the early internet as, as an equity analyst, and the question just came up every single call. People are trying to figure out where are we, where are we in this, and as it rolls out. And so I'd be interested in each of your perspectives. Well, when we think about the alternative plant-based category, just to use one of what I think will be multiple major food system trends, uh, I, I mean, I'd say we're in the on-deck circle. Um, I mean, you've got brands that have uh, talked about launching new products now for several months. Many of them haven't even put out a single product yet. And a market that is, is not very large, really and projected to grow at you know, somewhere, but depending on who you ask, 20 to 40% uh, compounded annual growth rate for the foreseeable future. Every couple months, there's new data coming out saying that a larger and larger swath of the market will be open and accessible to these types of products uh, to the tune of getting at the most recent one that I saw was more than uh, $400 billion in the next uh, 12 to 15 years. Um, this is from a base of a few billion dollars today. Um, so I would call that um, once in a generation kind of growth. And, and we're, we're, not, we're not yet in the, in the batter's box, frankly. I, I would, from a technology enabled supply chain standpoint for food, we are just starting the first inning. For the planet, unfortunately, we're in the ninth inning. But the good news is um, consumer demand is, is also in the ninth inning. As, as I started this conversation with you all, demand is not our problem. Consumers are demanding better food. Uh, it's just capital has just begun to flow to real technology companies that can solve it. Um, so it's early days. Well, I'd like to thank both of you, Matt and David, for your candid, truthful answers. You've given us a lot of insight and a lot of perspective. In terms of the participants, we are going to forward all the questions to Matt and David, and hopefully they can get back to you um, via email at some point. Um, but again, just want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Um, again, a lot of great information. So thanks to all, and um, we'll see you next month. Great. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Take care.